Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome to another episode of FOMO FOMO. Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and as always, FOMO Sapiens 24-7. Now today, we have, well, he's a really FOMO sapiens kind of guy, if that's a, an adjective I can use. His name is Matt Higgins, and we're going to be talking about unleashing fearlessness in entrepreneurship, and I guess in anything, really. We're going to be talking about how do you commit to the path that you're on and actually sort of like burn the boat as it were. Like the idea is you you send people into war back in the day when they take the boat and then they'd burn it so they couldn't turn back. And this is the title of a new book by my guest, Matt Higgins, who is the co-founder and CEO of the private investment firm, RSE Ventures. And also he is an executive fellow at Harvard Business School where he co-teaches the course Moving Beyond DTC. That's direct to consumer, I believe, as far as I know. He is also a guest shark on ABC's Shark Tank seasons 10 and 11. And soon he'll have his own TV show. That's fancy. It's called Business Hunters. And it will be produced by Mark Burnett, who, of course, made Shark Tank. So, Matt, you're going to, I have a feeling we're going to be hearing more from Matt in the future. That is coming down the pike. But until then, we're going to be talking about his new book and his approach to business and to life. And here's what you're going to learn. First of all, Matt comes in hot in this interview, talking straight out of the box about his life philosophy, what he went through. He had a very difficult childhood really hard times and he turned it around and he's been really successful. He talks about that experience and the decision he made to choose a life that was very different than the one he came from. So that, that that's just, first of all, a really, I think it's one of the best out of the box conversations we've ever had on the show. Second, he's going to explain the philosophy of burn the boat, which by the way, when I first heard it, I was like, I don't, I was a little skeptical. I'm not going to lie. I'm not a boat burner apparently. (laughs) So we're going to talk about that. And then finally, he gives me a quote. Matt brought a lot to this interview. I'm going to say like, I I had heard about him. I knew who he was. In fact, I knew somebody who worked with him, but I didn't put it all together. And so when he came on the show, I liked the book and I was like, this is interesting. But when he came on the show, he just brought a little heat and he brings this concept that I thought was really valuable. He talks about how the greatest unlock is self awareness. The greatest unlock is self-awareness. That, that's a good one. All right. Now onto the small ask. As you know, 
I'm on TikTok. If you haven't heard this yet, <laughs> I apologize. I apologize that I'm there. Maybe I don't, I don't know. I think it's good. I mean, I think what we're putting there is good, but I just, I had, I waited, probably waited too long, but go check out my channel, Patrick J. McGinnis. We have got clips from interviews so you can see what's happening in video form with our guests, people like Matt and other guests we've had on the show. Go check it out. It's also on Instagram Reels. Go check them out. Both of them at Patrick J. McGinnis. Comments, feedbacks, you tell me what you think I should be doing. You guys know better than me probably at this point, especially those of you who are good at TikTok, and I know that some of you are. So please tell me. All right, and now onto the interview. As is customary, I always start every interview with the same question, and I did not give Matt a respite. So I started our conversation by asking him this. What's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? The formative decision or a formative decision? Uh, a formative, but okay. I like the if you're willing to go there. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll give you the actually. This is why okay. it's a nuance, right? But uh, um, uh, and I always say, you know, parents like close your ears because you're not going to like this uh, answer to it. But uh, the most important decision I ever made in my life was to drop out of high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I dissect that decision, sort of everything that came later can be kind of, uh, you know, attributed back to that moment on the steps of Cardoza High School when I was 16. So to give you a little bit of context, uh, I, I, I grew up very poor uh, in abject poverty in, in Queens. Those words tend to lose their meaning, right? Abject poverty sounds cliche, but like really poverty mm. right? to sort of paint a picture, like sleeping on a, on a dirty mattress on the floor. Uh, a lot of dysfunction being raised by my mom, who was brilliant, but had a lot of health issues. You know, and um, a lot of hustling since I was uh, a young kid. I used to sell flowers on street corners on holidays and, you know, wow. Yeah, Mother's Day, I'd be the kid who walk up to people knocking on the windows, like try to guilt the guy into buying flowers, you know, et cetera. Like I, I did everything, sold handbags on the top of vans on at flea markets. And so just giving you a sense of this constant like hustle uh, and then a lot of shame where my mother would, uh, we'd always take a bus to a food pantry about an hour away. I didn't understand those decisions when I was a kid. Like were there were no food pantries in Bayside, Queens, but uh, mm. we were just trying to hide what we were going through. So a lot of desperation juxtaposed against a mom who was really smart and born of a lot of abuse and uh, left my dad. And I watched as she tried to reclaim some dignity in her life. She got a GD when, uh, as an adult and, um, and always felt uh, insecure that she didn't have any education. And she enrolled in Queens College. So imagine my mother cleaning floors for elderly, uh, you know, for senior citizens, making a few bucks an hour, and then at the same time dragging me to classes on, on uh, Saturday as a 10-year-old boy. So that was my context, was that education was salvation and the place to give my mother dignity. And as I got older, 13, 14, and the contrast between my true life of shame and the one I was pretending to live with my Jordache jeans so kids wouldn't know I was poor became so great that I was like, the, the world does not work for me. The world is not set up for the edge cases. The world is set up for like a regression to the mean, right? Like what is the common denominator of experience? And then a world works for them. So what does that mean? Education works for them. But when you're a kid and you're working like at a deli with your butterfly knife so you don't get jumped at two in the morning and then trying to go to school, like it doesn't work. And so... I, I was getting increasingly depressed, hoping a white knight would come. No one ever did. And finally, I said, I need to take matters into my own hands. The advice I'm getting from everybody feels completely off kilter with what my intuition is telling me, that I need to make a radical decision. And I came up with a hack um, around 13, 14 years old. If my mother could go to college with a GD as an adult, could I do it on purpose? And if I could do it on purpose, I could pull forward my entire professional career and I could get a job 
getting paid $9 an hour as a college student. My entire motivation for dropping out of high school was to go from making five bucks an hour at a deli to making nine bucks an hour delivering flyers for a political campaign. That was the epiphany. And I remember, um, you know, my guidance counselor and everyone when I rolled this decision out. And I wasn't I wasn't like a, a you know, a ruffian. You know what I mean? I was a decent kid with a good veneer. So it was kind of hard to comport. Like, what do you mean you're going to drop out of high school on purpose? And so I realized that the second decision I made was that the only way for me to actually go forward with this, given the full weight of conventional wisdom and the shame of dropping out, was that I had to torpedo any option to turn back. And so I, this, I decided I would fail every single class deliberately. Um, and get left back uh, a few years in a row, sit in the same homeroom with the kids with the beepers, you know, chewing, pursuing very different life choices. And I would, I call the land of misfit toys. They were, and they would let me sleep in the back. I was tired. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, uh, and then I, 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 and now to actually execute this decision is an entirely another story. Um, mm. But I ended up um, going through with it. Last day of high school, returned my textbooks. I remember my science teacher told the whole class, you know, you're uh, what a waste. Higgins went a waste and uh, see you at McDonald's. Those were my last words I heard in school. Not to dramatize it, but it's true. Yeah. Um, but he was right. Conventionally, <laughs> I dropped out, took my GD, took my SAT, enrolled in Queens College at 16. And I went to my prom as president of the debate team. And I remember the look in the, uh, in the face of my, Mr. Rosenthal and the other teachers that went from pity to uh, begrudging admiration that you had identified a way to make the system work for you. So, so what do I what do I ascribe to that one decision? One, Warren Buffett talks about compounding in the context of money, that it's the most important financial principle, which it is. But nobody talks about compounding with professional success because the same phenomenon is operating upon you. By the single decision to drop out at 16, by the time I was 17, I got a job at a no newspaper in Queens called The Tribune in my own column. I, began an I became an investigative reporter writing these muckraking stories as a kid. Well, I came to the attention of Carl Bernstein, who wrote a letter nominating me and my partner uh, for a Pulitzer Prize when I was 19. Now, anybody could be nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, but it sure is nice to have that, you know, imprimatur as a kid. And everything kept compounding so that by the time I went from a 16-year-old kid, I went from a high school dropout. And by the time I was 26, I became the youngest press secretary in New York, going from $375 or 5 bucks an hour to $105,000 a year. So like compounding was how I discovered that sort of exponential compounding applies to professionalism uh, at 16 years old. Wow. You know, there's a lot in there. And I, I love the image of you going to school with your mom, because when I was a kid, my mom was going to night school for college. Oh, so really? I, oh, yeah. So, so she just I never, heard, I never had anybody share this with me. Like, yeah, she she's my mom's super intelligent, did great in high school, but just didn't have the you know, she could she had to work after she got out of school. She didn't have the ability to like go in off and do four year college like a lot of other people. And so when I was a little kid on the weekends and on the nights, occasionally she would take me to her classes. And I, there was one time, actually, this is a terrible story, but she took me to class and the teacher, it was like a kind of a one-on-one -on -one session that he was like, you know, whatever, like a, what is, a study hall kind of thing. And um, <laughs> the, uh, the teacher talked a lot with his hands. And so when we were leaving, the teacher said, it was very nice to meet you, young man. And I said, I shook my hands up in the air and I was like, it was really nice meeting you. And my mom was like, I'm not going to get an A in that class. So I apologize, mom. She still did because she's really good at school. But uh, but I love that imagery because I remember what that was. And I, I, I just you, it, it does imbue you with a value. It's like somebody who is an adult who could be just messing around all day is taking their free time to go off and study 
And, you know, so it's like, well, there must be something really valuable here. So I, I really appreciate that. Well, you know, I, I love that we're talking. I, I, gave, I went back to that college, actually, and delivered the commencement address. Um, and I start off the speech with the imagery that you and I are talking about. Me sitting on a hot summer day and I think it was sociology class and then looking at my mother thinking like, what are we doing here? You know, it's fascinating. Right. And that, that, that whole imagery, my mom actually, um, first day I became press secretary, this is the greatest failure of my life. I become press secretary, the mayor of New York at 26. To be honest with you, I wanted nothing to do but to leave that house. Like I was not a hero. I, mm. I was desperate to live a normal life. I'm 26 at that point, never even had a girlfriend over, right? Or a single person. So it's like my whole life is constructed on this lie of desperation. And then I get to work that morning at 10 o'clock and I get a call that she had called an ambulance. And uh, by the time I got there, she had died. So it was oh. like, you know, for me, it's just a never ending life of unfinished business of like, how wow. do I, you know, the shock, being confronted with the fact that we are not guaranteed happy endings is like so horrifying when you actually see it, right? Like, I'd like to put my mother's life in a bow. It's not true. She died in squalor, unable to move and hoping for something better. And so she always was worried her life would have no meaning. And I, I came up with this idea that I really want to deliver the commencement address and almost inter her here, you know, because mm. this is the only place where she was alive. And I start mm. off speech with that point, you know, giving, giving, uh, you know, just giving a giving context of what she went through to get here and kind of you know, resurrecting her as a hero to that audience. Wow. I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that story. You get so heavy. It's just brought me back to that. Yeah, I know. The good news is we've, this is such a good, a good sort of sort of wind up for what we're going to talk about, because you talk about the fact, you know, you've got this new book out, it's called burn the boats, toss plan B overboard and unleash your full potential. I like that you kept the boat theme in the subtitle. Got to extend, extend the metaphor. You do. Yeah. And so this is in your story that you just told about this formative decision. What, what, I, what you know, you, what you really made a point of is that you sort of like you couldn't you, you made sure by failing that it's like you can't just go back. You have closed off the option that the safe plan B and forced yourself into this thing. You know, it's like I can't look back. I got to go forward. And so talk about, you know, just to get started here. What is the burn the boats philosophy? Okay, amazing. And again, that is why I did start with that story. But just a quick, quick, quick uh, history lesson on the words, burn the boats, right? The reason I, I decided to use that is throughout history, you know, sometimes it's attributed to Cortez, very bad person, right? But it actually goes back all the way to recorded history. This theme in a military context, when you are outnumbered, and your backup is against the wall, the way to win is to eliminate your safety net. And the way to do the boats is your transportation back home, right? So it's in the art of war, it's boats and actually cooking pots. You know, it just shows all the way back to Caesar, the ancient Israelites. Like, anyway, the point is, so I was obsessed with, so they've intuitively understood this notion that the best way to win when the odds are against you is to eliminate your escape route. Let me appropriate that or misappropriate and migrate it to a peacetime context, right? Because I believe the same general phenomenon operates upon everybody else. So I set out to try to write the definitive book about how to pursue plan A. Nobody likes to hedge or hesitate. And we convince ourselves it's practical and pragmatic to, or prudent to do so. But the reality is no one, we don't respect ourselves when we can't cross the threshold of commitment. So one I set out to establish from a science perspective, which I delve into in the book, history, psychology, why we humans perform better when they have no safety net, because we reflexively recoil when we hear burn the boats, but but I gotta pay my bills. And, I, and I'm not actually saying, you know, ignore all risk. I'm saying process and synthesize risk. 
so that you can evaluate the worst case scenario and therefore peacefully move forward. And then the second thing I set out to do after establishing that it is in fact true is to demonstrate what it means. What does it actually look like using the boat metaphor to make it easy to assimilate, right? What does it mean to go all in on plan A? I use my life as simply a vessel. I think a lot of where these books go wrong is you get so self-aggrandizing. You're like, let me tell you my autobiography. Like, I frankly don't care about my autobiography. If I'm being honest, I'm not interested. What I'm interested is to dissect my decision making and see if there's anything anyone can learn from it so they can emulate it. So I, I use myself as a vessel to transmit this idea. But then I interviewed 50 different celebrities, athletes, activists from all stripes, from, you know, billionaire Mark Laurie to my partner, Scarlett Johansson. To a 14, uh, to an Olympian who at 14 became a paraplegic and believes her life is better for it. I analyzed all these people to show how they crossed the threshold and see if there are patterns we can discern. And big picture, the two buckets are what are the internal obstacles that prevent us from moving forward and what are the external obstacles? Internal being shame, imposter syndrome, all these things. And what do you do about it? And then external obstacles being corporate saboteurs you know, who in a corporate context are preventing you sort of from making that next move. I tried to use all the trauma and pain and agonizing it took me to get here to uh, to discern these patterns that are operating upon us and articulate them in a way that makes them actionable. That was a long sentence, but like that, that's what I'm trying to do with this book. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. FOMO. You start the book with a, an interesting, very contemporary case study, which is military, by the way, which is Zelensky, President Zelensky of Ukraine, and, you know, it's as I because it's interesting, like I was thinking about that when I was reading the intro and then you pop in Zelensky and I was like, this is, you know, it does go back to like, you know, I, I, I've been to like, you know, 
Central Asia where the early sort of, you know, these kinds of philosophies played out were just like, they were just, they, they never had a plan B. They just went in, you know, they were, and they would never get, and that's why the Mongols conquered all the way to Cologne, Germany, right? They just, they, they had a strategy, they had a system, and they also just didn't turn back, right? How does Zelensky fit into what you're talking about in the book? I think Zelensky is a fascinating character. I mean, we're living through a version of Churchill, right? And and uh, since we have low attention span, we've moved on to the you know the next thing. But I mean, when we look back in the long arc of history, I mean, this person is mm-hmm. obviously Church- Churchillian. Um, but how does he fit in? I, I open the book to show that it holds through to present day time. By when he when uh, when it was when everyone thought he was uh, going to capitulate immediately and should capitulate and will be dead immediately, the uh, the president of the United States, Joe Biden, offered him basically a way out and, and, and saying, and so Zelensky went out there and said, uh, you know, to paraphrase, I don't need a ride. I need weapons. And it, I think that I, when in the long arc of history, when we look back, that is going to be a seminal moment when he signaled to the world. Okay. I mean, he may be nuts, but he's going to stay and fight. Maybe we should escalate our commitment. And if you look at that as a turning point, that signaled to everyone else that he had no plan B. It signaled to his own population that they should sort of go all in. But it was the moment when and when there was a slight pivot. It's the first social media war, right? Where everyone said, this is worth my emotional energy and it's worth some of my money. And I, I, I think that there's a before and there an after. And the after was that statement when he said, I'm going to burn, burn the boats. That's actually really true. And I never thought about connecting that to why everybody got so emotionally invested and financially invested. I mean, I watched the whole thing. I was, I was round the clock sleeping on my couch, watching the coverage. I gave money. I went to fundraiser. I did all the things. Um, and I'd been in Ukraine. I liked Ukraine. I, was, I, I believed it was unjust what was happening, but much more than any other conflict that I could think of, because it felt so, you know, you knew he was stuck in and committed in a way that gave you the opportunity to join the fight. How does this work in the business, in the business world? Yeah. And he mastered, he's mastered communication in a way that no one else has. Uh, and, and, you know, in our lifetime, I don't believe at that level, right? To basically, you know, marshal all the resources against the enemy and get people to care about a place they've never been to. Now, you're an investor in a bunch of amazing companies, Momofuku among them. If you know RC Ventures, if you go on the portfolio uh, page and look at what you've invested in, it's a really, it's a bunch of businesses that that a lot of us resonate with. Take this, burn the boats kind of framework and put it into a business setting where, you know, it's not Vladimir Zelensky, but it's a CEO who's got a bunch of employees and investors to deal with. Yeah. And again, so burn the boats is an, is an umbrella, right? To mm-hmm. uh, which uh, you can unpack a lot that, and, and, and simply meaning what does it take to, to fully commit? And, yeah. and, and when, why I use that umbrella is it enabled me to go to the, one of the guiding principles of my investing career, uh, which is the fish rots from the head. Right. If you look at what prevents people from fully committing and being successful, it's because there's a misalignment somewhere in their life internally. It, usually, I think the greatest arbitrage in society is, is self-awareness. It, we spend all this energy going to Barnes and Noble and searching the bookstores for the outside. We're looking to outsource our judgment to another. We're always looking for a parental super authority or super ego to tell us what to do. When in reality, the greatest unlock is self-awareness and the greatest arbitrage is within you. So back to a business context. Um, I, I touch upon the book, these recurring themes that derail success. One, it starts with shame. A lot of hu- CEOs are humans. They carry baggage, right? So if there's unreconciled shame that makes them afraid of scrutiny because they're hiding something, 
even from themselves, they are going to be resistant to feedback, right? So if you draw the line between Matt is poor, GD has shame, feels inadequate, well, reject scrutiny feedback because I feel like I'm not worthy. I know this sounds like psychobabble, but I'm 100% true. So I, I start with what are the things in the human that are preventing them from unlocking their full full potential and in and embracing um, self-awareness? And then that will show up you know, in how you treat your employees, right? If you deny yourself um, empathy and the right to acknowledge your pain and trauma, you will deny the same to your employees, right? You will hold them to an impossible standard. And so how does it apply to my investing strategy is um, I try to create a safe space to have a vulnerable conversation so we can have breakthroughs. And there's a reason why I share there's a reason why I don't start this this podcast by saying I teach at Harvard Business School. To me, I love teaching at Harvard Business School, but it's not useful for play for creating a safe space to talk about breakthrough. Telling you about my GD and failing to save my mother and carrying that trauma for 25 years is much more useful. And so in my investing, I really try to as fast as possible as create a space between myself and my partners, my entrepreneurs about, well, this is what I had to deal with. You know, what do you got? Right. And I find that accelerates the breakthrough. And I tend to lean a lot on industrial psychologists. I've used them for the last, you know, 25 years, which people don't often do. And I think when you when the worst deals I've ever done is when I've partnered with a private equity shop or like a marquee brand name firm. And I find that all the diligence is numerical. And it's because we want certainty. We want to we want to reduce everything to an Excel sheet, but the Excel sheet doesn't have the answers. The human does, right? So I spend a lot of time just trying to you know create that space where we can have breakthroughs. And not again, not everybody. Maybe I'm I have a bias because I had issues I needed to work through, but I kind of feel like everybody carries something at any one point in time. What percentage of the population is going through divorce and trying to save their marriage? Right? Like we're all carrying something. So. I really try to take these sunny Instagram posts of like, failure is a great thing and turn it into something actionable. You know what I mean? Like there's like superficial layer of the universe and actually make it concrete. FOMO. FOMO. I want to repeat back to you what you said because it was, I don't usually do this, by the way. I wrote this down. This is going into my like list. I have a list on my phone of what I call um, just like great thoughts. And I, you know, you're, you're getting on there today, oh. which is. I'm being honest. Like, honest, that's all I'm here to do. About oh that. no, I'm not, and I'm not. I'm not here to tell you you're great. I just, I just want to repeat your quote because I loved it. Greatest unlock. The greatest unlock in life is self awareness, and the greatest arbitrage is within you. When you said that, I had like 43 examples of things that I've seen around me of people who have struggled and failed for that precise reason. Because and and by the way, didn't have investors that would challenge them, didn't have employees who would step up to them. Like that's where leaders fail too. But it's like if you were moderately self-aware, insert name here, and there's a bunch of us, uh, a bunch of names we could put in there, Elon Musk, um, among others. Uh, sorry, Elon, but you know, I just got to do that. Imagine. Yeah, the guy's been successful, but like it's all going up and, and smoke in, in a lot of ways because of the lack of self-awareness. And it happens over and over again. So that's a really, you know, we can all do that. You don't need to go to Harvard Business School. You don't need to be rich. I mean, these are things that, in fact, some people who have the least resources do these things incredibly well vis-a-vis -vis other people because they don't have all the noise and distraction around them. Well, let's so, talk about that. So let's make it yeah. actually more practical yeah. from that. Investment stamp because I so now we're we're in the empathy in the psychobabble. Let's make it like you know mercenary black and white from an investor standpoint. Why mm -hmm. is backing people with high self awareness more effective? And the reason is self awareness. People who are over indexed for self awareness do not require interventions to make course corrections. 
it scales better. So if I'm backing somebody who's self-aware, rather than me having to have that frictionful conversation of saying, well, Bob, turns out you're really a shitty manager and uh, maybe you weren't cut out to be the, uh, the COO. Maybe you were cut out to be the, uh, you know, the chief revenue officer or whatever. If somebody's over-indexed for self-awareness, they are intellectually curious about the areas where they uh, need to be buttressed and they will make their own course corrections. I always say, I, again, not to make snap judgments, but I generally can predict uh, the ultimate success of a founder CEO based upon how long it takes them to implement um, a, a decision that is objectively inevitable. Your product is going to fail. Your whatever, right? Your that toxic employee is going to kill your company. But there's a certain type of individual who under-indexes for self-awareness that needs to see the iceberg port side before they'll actually make the decision. So I, I, I put so much energy, but the problem is these are abstract thoughts, which is why I wrote my book. Like the abstract layer is where the real opportunity is, but somebody needs to articulate it in a way that can be assimilated, right? So I was like, how do I take that idea of self-awareness and try to make it something that all of us who are listening to this can spot outside of us and spot within us? Right. Like, how do you how do you identify somebody who overindexes for self-awareness? What does it look like? And I try to reduce it to something that we all can understand. So let's go there. Let's talk about I have to imagine. And by the way, I, you know, I don't want to pick on HBS because it's a great place. But having been there, like, you know, and 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 also but coming from the state of Maine and a, a you know middle class family. And so I didn't have the Hamptons house and all the things that a lot of my classmates had or the dad who was the prime minister or whatever, mother. Um, you know, the, the level of self-awareness for some people who have a gazillion plan Bs and if they fail, you know, they, they always have a slot at the, you know, the family conglomerate and stuff like that. Vis-a-vis -vis the scrappy person who just said like, they're like, I have one option only, which is just, I got to figure this out because that's, that's all there is for me. It is, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about that dichotomy. How does one, how does one, you know, take a person who grows up with all of the plan B's in the world and no need to be self-aware because they've got all the credentials. Like, how do you move them into the space where they are self-aware? Is it, is it, some people are just born like that or is it a learned skill? I think that if you under-index for self-awareness, um, the best way to have a breakthrough is to model it because the soul can recognize the peace that comes from letting go. But I think every single person, unless you're a sociopath, which is about one to 2%, like, will will identify when they see it modeled and will want to emulate it right because it's a better place to live that's that's my short answer that's generally been my you know hack i'm not doing it to be manipulative i'm doing it because i really i really care i've i've uh, you know for better or worse you know tortured by empathy so if i see something i'm like wow if you only you would let go and then you do it now i find those who don't want to emulate it tend to be narcissistic frankly Right. So maybe not a sociopath, but they tend to be narcissistic and they get they reject it. Right. Um, but most people are not They're they, they want they want to live that way. And so if you're a leader or you're an investor and you have that person who's just, you know, like you sit them down in a room, they're failing on that front. Like, what do you say to them? I think those people respond to consequence. More than anything, if you don't, you're, talk, you're mm. saying they under-index for self-awareness and we don't think they're comfortable and not responding to it. Yeah. And you just see they're failing. Like you're the investor, you've invested this person, like they made, you thought you, you thought you had the right read on them, but then once you get into the business and you watch the way they're leading the business, they're just missing it all. And they're, and they're, and you see that they're failing and you're like, this is my chance. Like I got to step in now. I got to work with them. Like how, how do you do that? 
Yeah, that's where the um, that's where the energy drain comes from, right? Because you you spend a lot of time hoping that you can move people along. It's you know very difficult. Um, but I think that you then have to pivot your energy from empathy towards the person to empathy towards the job dependencies, right? This person will be unsuccessful. Forget about the money that will be lost, but these lives will be disrupted. You know, usually when somebody is manifesting that way, there's an element of persecution is right. There's a victim involved and the, and the victim is the ones who are depending upon that person for leadership and for their jobs to feed their children. And so I think you shift, you shift motivation systems from trying to unlock the best of that person to preserving the best of the people who are dependent upon that person. And you make very harsh decisions as fast as humanly possible, frankly. Um, but it's very hard to know when's the moment, right? But I think we all know when we have somebody who's very help resistant and change resistant because they're narcissistic and it's hard to break through, right? Like we, we all can identify it after a period of reps. Most people are not though. Most people feel a sense of relief when you identify that this is where you're falling short. And by the way, it's not the end of the world, right? Because we, when we're not self-aware, you also catastrophize about the consequence of self-awareness. That's the big block. It's either you got daddy issues or something. I'm unloved, you know, like I, I'm going to lose everything I ever got. You know, there's usually a block. And if you relieve them of the consequence of that and say, it's still okay. I talk about this in my book. My greatest case study was one of my CEOs. This is exactly the fact pattern. I break down some of the archetypes of failed leadership and put words to concepts. One of them is, you know, martyr. And the martyr is the leader who believes that they, you know, are going to take everything on because that is the universe is preordained that they must carry the load, right? And the problem with the martyr is they take on too much and they block other people from actually doing the job and they're mediocre by definition because they're doing too much, right? So I had one of my CEOs who was a martyr and trying to break down like, well, why are you a martyr? And it's because he was defining the job incorrectly. He thought the job of a founder and a CEO was to be good at everything as opposed to identify others who are good at everything and better than him. To almost render yourself obsolete in most areas where you're not critical. And then the company was about to, fall apart, like literally. And he called me up one night and he was crying on the phone. And I said, you know, what's going on? I said, I, I, I'm, I failed you. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to quit. And, and then I was like, what's the beeping now noise that I hear in the background? He's like, I'm in the hospital. My daughter has a lot of health issues. She's tied up to an EKG wrapped around her head. And I was like, first of all, hang up the effing phone. I was like, you are struggling. You've been caring too much. We need a reset. You hang up, call me whenever you come up for air again. The job will still be here. I will let you know when you're finished. I will have no problem making this phone call, but it'll be my call to make. And, you know, he called me um, several days later and he's like, okay, I'm ready to go to work. We brought in an industrial psychologist, um, started coaching him. She actually came back like, man, this place is, a, you know, rough. There's all these issues. We did this report. And it was the most one of the most uncomfortable professional meetings I ever had. My process is the person gets the report and they don't have to show it to me. Like literally, I never, the mere act of doing the report is enough of, of, a, of a process. And he presented the findings to me in such an uncomfortable way. And then he excused himself from the room. And then um, he went into the, his team meeting next door and he dropped the report in the center of the table and said, you already know everything that I've got going wrong and I got a lot of work to do. Why don't we start here? And had you can pass it around and had everybody read it. 20 months later, he sold the company for well north of $100 million. He had taken something that was destined to be a zero and changed the course of his life and his kid's life. Like, And I knew he had it in him anyway, but all we needed was the breakthrough. There's a personal layer of stuff that even I to this day don't know what it was that was really making him stuck. And so that is a triumphant case study that I get into the book. But you know, I obviously have several times when the, the, the leader was completely resistant to that process and they failed. 
The greatest unlock in life is self-awareness and the greatest arbitrage is within you. You got to say it again because that's your story right there. That that I mean, that tells the, the tale right there. Still a work in progress, by the way. And I don't say that in a cliche way. Okay, everybody. The book is Burn the Boats. You can find out more about Matt if you go to LinkedIn where he's Matt Higgins. You can also go to burntheboatbook.com, which is interesting because it's amazing that burntheboat.com is already taken, but... That just I know it's an <laughs> advertising firm. I was like, ah, oh, you know, uh, uh, like I really wanted it. <laughs> yeah, so go check that out. Go find the book on Amazon and let Matt know what you think about the book. Uh, Matt Higgins, author of Burn the Book. Thanks for being here. Patrick, you're amazing. Thank you. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstrom. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMO Sapiens.com. FOMO.